Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Arian. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earth. The DC Universe will never be the same. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds of snakes, an aeroplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Let's go! I know the hurricane was a fear cell turn. World to the zone, these dumbest of your own knees. Beat up with not speak, run, no strength, no rest. Such a planet with a fear hunt down like Hello and welcome to the third episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America Presents Crisis on Infinite Earths. I am one of your hosts, Michael Bailey, and with me, as always, is my good friend and president of the Scott H. Gardner Fan Association, we have Mr. Scott H. Gardner. <laughs> How's it going, man? Yeah, you, you you are not just the president, you're also a client. <laughs> and it had to be the association, because apparently there is a Scott H. Gardner fan club, and that's been, like, trademarked or something. I don't know if I, I don't know who this other Scott H. Gardner is, but uh, we need to track him down and get that back for you. <laughs> oh, you, have you ever Googled yourself, just to, just to see, you know, what's out there? Uh, I, I've done that once or twice, yes. Some of the some of the other Scott Gardeners of the world are scary, scary people. Uh, most of mine are like uh, like scientists or work in finance. Uh, <laughs> Michael Bailey Smith, who is an actor, will come up once in a while. He played the thing in uh, he played the the human form of the thing in that Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie. Oh, <laughs> uh, and he's been on Charmed and a bunch of other things. And the funny thing is, is that a friend of mine actually found me years ago by Googling Michael Bailey Superman uh, ah. and found stuff from the homepage and got contact information through that. So that was kind of weird. <laughs> but I guess if you're going to be known for something, that's not the, not the bad thing to be known for. So No. Well, I think it's fair to say that reaction to this particular series has been uh, pretty prolific, and I'm only going by the amount of mail we have received uh, for the crisis shows. Uh, you know, usually we get a, a fair bit of mail, but I think I can I, I think it's doubled, uh, and it's just mainly yeah. people writing it about crisis. I think this is awesome. I really do. Well, you know, it's as I said to you off the air before that uh, you know. 
I know we have a very large listenership, but this tells me that a lot of people are listening to to this particular show, to the crisis shows, because, you know, the 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 rate of people that listen versus the people that write in is, I mean, it's it's minuscule compared to the actual listenership. So to suddenly get this flood of email says that either we've gained a whole bunch of new listeners, which I believe that we have, just judging by, you know, the folks that have been joining the group and everything. Uh, It's that, that we've gained a a bunch of new people, but also that we've, uh, you know, we've touched upon something that's really important to people. Mm -hmm. That crisis means a lot to a lot of people. And uh, I think this is great. I I love the the sudden flood of feedback that we're getting on this. And uh, pretty much all positive, too, which is always nice. You know, we're not getting a flood uh, of of passionate folks going, uh, you're ruining my childhood or something like that. So that's awesome. I don't know how we could be accused of ruining their childhood, but I guess you never know. Well, starting off with that feedback this time out, we got one from our friend Russell Bragg, who I think has won the contest for longest uh, subject to an email. (laughs) Uh, Tales of the Justice Society of America presents Crisis on Infinite Earths, Episode 1, The Summoning. And Russell writes, Hi guys, great show to open this epic storyline with. I truly enjoyed your coverage. I don't really know why I enjoy this story so much. I guess it was so epic and it changed so much of DC's comics' universe. As for my crisis history, I guess I can sum it up in three words. I missed it. I'm thinking that the newsstand I usually got my comics from stopped selling comics and I didn't see any covers around anywhere else. I am positively sure that if I had seen the cover to Crisis Number 7, that would have stopped me cold and I'd take a look inside to see if it was true. The sad thing is, I think I've mentioned this before in other emails, I had subscriptions to The New Adventures of Superboy and Superman around 1983 to 1984. Of course, Superboy was discontinued and I decided not to renew the Superman subscription. I believe I was on issue 404. In hindsight, I should have continued for one more year. I could have gotten at least one issue, uh, at least issue 416 and it would have forced me to seek out the Crisis books. Don't really remember how long it took me to find out about the Crisis, but I did. Uh, but I will always feel bad or guilty or whatever that I was right there and could have gotten in the ground floor like Scott did. Oh well, no use crying over spilt milk. Like Mike, my wife bought me a bought me for Christmas some time ago the hardbound slipcase cover as well as the absolute edition of Crisis on Infinite Earths. They both look awesome on my comic shelves. I am also trying to get all of the crossover and tie-ins. I also got my Crisis on Infinite Earths t-shirt a couple of weeks ago, and I'm anxiously uh, waiting for warm weather so I can wear it. Before I close, I was wondering if either of you knew about, or had listened to, the Comic Geek Speak, the Crisis Tapes podcast. It was issued sometime in 2009. It is very good and very informative, too. Comic Geek Speak is currently doing some more Crisis coverage, which I haven't gotten to listen to yet. Just wanted to share if you weren't aware, hey, that rhymes, well, I better get back to your. Uh, I will let you get back to your coverage. I eagerly await each and every episode. Thank you for keeping me entertained at work. And that's from Russell Bragg, from Clarksville, Clarksburg, West Virginia, and he is the host of the DC Comics Present show. Uh, I am aware of that uh, of the Comic Geek Speak thing. I just haven't listened to it yet. Comic Geek Speak. Listening to Comic Geek Speak was one of the things that got me into to podcasts. That was one of, if not the very first podcast I ever listened to, one of the very first podcasts I ever listened to was their show, and it was um, 
the coverage that they were doing as a special series of JLA Avengers that really got me hooked on the show, the, the level of detail that they brought to it. I think I heard the first couple of Crisis tapes that they did because, as Russell says, they started that a long time ago. That was back in, I think he's right, I think that was uh, right around 2009. Um, and they started that series, and then I remember they, they didn't get very far into it. So it's interesting that they've picked that back up. I'm sure it's just you know because it's 30th anniversary and all that. And I know that uh, one of the co-hosts on there, Adam Murdo, he actually wrote his... That he wrote his thesis on Crisis on Infinite Earths, so you know it means a lot to him on on that personal level. But I, I have not listened to it mostly because, um, as I'm often want to do when it comes to something like this, if I find that I'm working on a, on a similar project that another uh, host or another show is doing. I won't listen to theirs until I've done my own because I don't want to ever be accused of of stealing bits or material or or not doing my own homework or something like that. So uh, nothing against them whatsoever. I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy for them, but I I don't, I will listen to it later, um, you know, just for those reasons. Uh, Russell brought up something else here that uh, I can't believe I've totally forgot to mention last Crisis episode, which was the Crisis t-shirt. I finally got mine. I can't believe I forgot to mention that last time around. But uh, yes, mine finally came. It is awesome. I got the two-sided one. It's beautiful. And uh, if anyone goes to Eternal Con uh, that's coming up in June in, uh, in New York... Uh, I will be going to, or at least the plan so far is for me to go to Eternal Con, and I will be proudly uh, wearing my Crisis shirt during that entire con as well. So, so yeah, you bought more than awesome. one? No, just the one. So you're going to wear the same shirt for like three days? Yeah. Hey, if everybody else can be confunked out, <laughs> I can be confunked with right along with the best of them, buddy. <laughs> uh you know, at least they think they hit themselves with some Axe spray. I mean, I know Axe <laughs> smells like virginity and fear, but, you know, I just, uh, <laughs> that was mean. I, I, I mean every word of it, but it was still mean, so. <laughs> well, we've got another one here. This one's simply entitled Crisis. I love it. This one is from Bradley Null, and Bradley writes, Just listen to, your, uh, to the first of your Crisis podcasts. I'm about the same age as Scott, so like him... Uh, I have memories of finding the book on the racks. You also have memories of when when Moses split the the, the sea, so... Hey, hey! (laughs) (laughs) I had seen the ads, but one look at the first cover, and you knew uh, what it was going to be. Actually, at the time, I confess, I didn't trust Perez covers. There were a ton of DC books with his art on the front, and someone else on the inside. (laughs) Yeah, bait and switch. So it was actually upon opening the book that I knew this would change everything. I rode my bike home and called Danny, uh, the only other human I knew for whom this would make sense. He already had an issue. We were hooked. I can remember where I bought each issue. It was a trick as the store racks uh, that had some issues didn't have others. Yeah, that was a common uh, problem in those days. However, I had played this game many times. I had a route that included two drugstores, two Circle Ks, an AMPM, and the 7-Eleven, brand new to town, and where I got issue one. That, my friends, is how I got consecutive issues in the 70s and 80s. It's also the last series I did this type of hunt for, as Crisis 11 was the first uh, comic I bought at the comic book store, Comics Castle, sad, uh, 
sad thing uh, that it was. And Crisis 12 was the first I had, quote-unquote, set aside for me by the same. It's why for me, post-crisis and pre-comic shop will always be the same thing. That's cool. And uh, he says, thanks for the great show, Bradley Man. And he has a PS here. He says, I wonder what it was like for fans of Solivar. Hmm. I'm not sure what he means by that. Just but, having him in there, maybe? Just uh, him getting injured? I mean... <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. And, and did Solivar... I'm going to say this and, and not try to sound snarky. Did Solivar have fans? I mean, I'm sure there were people that liked right. the character, but were there actually, like, people out there that, like, I have every appearance of Solivar, you know, which... I don't know how many that would be. So, I, and I, and again, I'm asking that not to be snarky or or, or a smartass. I'm actually kind of curious if, because everybody has like, everybody has like their favorite big character, but I think everybody right. also deep down has that one like ancillary character. Like for me, it's Iron Monroe. Mm-hmm. It's a character that isn't big time at all. Has only a handful of appearances beyond one series, and yet. You know, somebody loves them. So I'm sure that there is somebody out there with like a Solovar blog uh, or something like that. I'm just I'm just curious uh, if that if that's what he was talking about. Well, you know, one thing I was very you know, as you were talking, I suddenly thought, hey, I could just go ahead and look this up. Something we haven't been doing, and frankly, it would be fun, I guess, to do. But man, it would just add so much time to the show. Would be taking a look at the people that pop up in the series of crisis when did they last appear now i will be mentioning one this episode just because i I think it's special that you know this was his first appearance in a long time but i was curious about solivar and i looked it up here because it's actually uh that's one of the great features of the official index for crisis is it does tell you things like when was the last time we saw this person and uh for solivar it says that his last appearance was actually in flash number um now i've just completely lost i had it here so here it goes flash number 342 so that's not that long ago so it's not like he hadn't appeared in years and years you know this was just a few months prior to uh to crisis number one and i'm kind of curious about how in depth that appearance was if that makes any sense because uh my friend Stella that hosts the Batgirl to Oracle podcast over on the Batman universe, mm-hmm. she has been following, in addition to covering the new stuff with Batgirl, she was going chronological from Barbara Gordon's first appearance till today. And she had a file all set up of all of Barbara Gordon's appearances. And she had me on a show uh, to talk, oddly enough, to talk about the crisis because uh, she finally got to those issues. And it's like... Batgirl is in crisis number five in a panel and that's it. So when these online sources cite an appearance, it doesn't really go into how detailed that appearance is. Cause it could be like, you know, this character was in panel five of page six in the background and has no speaking roles, but they don't, they don't say that. So it could be since it was flash three forty two, that was during the trial it could have been nothing more than Solovar watching coverage of the trial in Gorilla City. Uh, unless he came and testified on behalf of the Flash. Well, that that's actually, that's kind of my 
my measuring stick for a truly great fan site that covers a particular character or team or whatever in comics is when they do break it down and differentiate between an appearance, a cameo, and just like a one panel Mm -hmm. type of thing. Uh, I'll tell you one of the great ones that's out there is the Jonah Hex Corral uh, that I go to quite often because it does it exactly that way. Whereas there's another one I was using not long ago for ROM as I was doing a read-through of ROM Space Night. And it didn't differentiate at all. So you had things on the list like, say, uh, Contest of Champions, which, I mean, he's like a minor... I mean, he's so minuscule in the background of like one panel and one issue kind of thing. And it's like, really? That's, that's you know, ridiculous to, to list that in a in a chronology. That's something that you should actually just footnote or something. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's one of those things that makes me a little bit nuts as one of those, you know, anal completists when it comes to, you know, particular characters or runs or whatever to... to shell out the money or spend months or years looking for an issue only they'd finally get it and find that, you know, that this appearance that you've been looking forward to was nothing more than, you know, uh, a mention or a, you know, a, a snapshot in the background or something like it's, it's really aggravating in some of them. I liked what, uh, what oh. Bradley was talking about here with the comic shops uh, or not comic shops, but, uh, you know, hunting for comics in the old days, going to the racks, <laughs> you know, this is one of those things that, you know, younger collectors, kids today kind of thing, they're, they're never going to appreciate this. They're never going to have to deal with what... The, I mean, they may... It, it, say some, the, the closest they'll ever come is like if there was some major release that comes out and takes the world by storm, they might have to go to multiple comic shops to find a copy yeah, of it. Yeah, I, I hear but, that quite a bit. But driving, you know, this thing of, you know, driving all over town or riding your bike all over town to go to the drugstore and the Circle K and the 7-Eleven. And I remember those days very vividly. But, you know, that's just one of those lost things that, you know, you just don't have to do anymore. No, I actually, it's, I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, it's funny because I was actually... I was telling my wife about this not long ago. Uh, we stopped at the drugstore to pick up a, a prescription and paid for it on my credit card and it was like 40 cents and she's just laughing like you don't have 40 cents i mean i'm like no yeah i hardly ever carry cash on me and somehow the conversation led to me telling her about the time that i had to write a check for 75 cents and it's because i had stopped at i don't know it was one of those little quickie mark type of places and they had the last issue of the Death in the Family storyline, the one with the Joker on the cover by Mike Mignola. And they had one copy, and it was a little bit, like, spine-bent and everything, but I didn't even realize that the issue was out, and so I went ahead and I snagged it. And to this day, I've been very glad that I did, because I'd never, I never did find it again. My comic shop, for whatever reason, didn't pull it for me. Uh, I don't know if maybe they didn't get enough copies or what. So if I hadn't gotten it then, I don't know that I ever would have gotten it because that ended up becoming one of those really expensive issues for a long, long time. I don't know if it is now, but I know I've never seen it in the cheap bin. But I ended up having to write a check for 75 cents to pay for it. I remember like the, the first two parts of that uh, were like $30 books for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And I think the second two parts were a little cheaper because by that point, DC, uh, I, I kind of had the exact opposite thing. I, you know, there were, there were copies everywhere 
Hmm. Uh, I just I just wrote an essay for something actually about like the early days of my collecting and how you know we we had a Seven Eleven that I could go to uh, and I I wasn't in an area where you could bike everywhere uh, because for whatever reason like the, the the two main roads that actually had stuff on it that I could go to uh, you wouldn't want to bike on there because you'd get killed uh, just because one was a highway. And one was kind of a major, kind of a busy road, so I was never allowed to bike anywhere like that. But <laughs> uh, there was a seven. There were a couple Seven Elevens that I could go to, but mainly it was the Trexler Town Mall that had a grocery store, a Walden Books, and a newsstand. And I, I, I didn't. Outside of the Superman books, I never really hunted for. I never really collected series when I first started collecting comics. Uh, but for me, it was just like three different places where they had different books. So if I was looking for something new, because this is the wild, wild west of collecting where you're literally judging a book by its cover, you know, it's not, do I need this for my collection or, Hey, I really like this character and I want to collect all of his appearances. It's like, Hey, I got an extra 75 cents. Ooh, look, a Spider-Man book, you know, and that kind of thing. So I I agree with you. And, and, And this isn't one of those like in my day. We had to fight a bear to get the latest issue of Crisis. No, it's not like that. Uh, where it's like some kind, of, like somehow it was a superior way of collecting. But I just don't think that newer collectors can really understand when you have eBay and when you have online retailers, uh, you know, and when you could go to like Marvel Unlimited. Uh, the subscription format, and basically read every Marvel comic ever for $10 a month? I mean, <laughs> it, it's it's such a different world we live in now. Uh, and I, I'm glad it's here. I'm glad that digital is, is you know, doing so well. But there was just something really kind of grand and special about those days when you didn't know where your next comic was coming from, essentially. Mm-hmm. So... Ah, the halcyon days of our youth. You whippersnappers don't know how good you got it. <laughs> I don't think they understand exactly how good they have it, in all honesty. Like, what's a whippersnapper? <laughs> what's a comic book? Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Next up, we have our good friend, Professor Alan Quartermain Middleton. Uh, uh, he says, all crisis, all the time. Scott and Mike, so glad that you guys have reached Crisis on Infinite Earths. I was in college during this time, and although I didn't have the loose change to purchase as many new comics as I would have liked, I made darn sure that I purchased all 12 issues of Crisis. And now, once a month, I pull one out of the long box and read along with your episodes. This was This was my first major comic book quote-unquote event, and I'm not sure that any event since this one has topped it. Thanks for giving me a chance to revisit these excellent books. Keep up the good work. Professor Allen, host of Quarter Bin Podcast, co-host of Shortbox Showcase, and co-host of the Book Guy Show, which you've been on. I have been on that. I like Professor. I've actually been on uh, Quarter Bin as well. Yes, I did a very with... excellent ROM episode. Was that? Wait a minute. Was that Quarter Bin? Yes, that, that was, was the, Quarter yes, Bin. Cause that... He, yeah, because he got his out of the out of the Quarter Bin. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> a lucky bastard. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Now, I'm wondering, I, I, the part of this that I kind of focused on was when he said this was my first uh, major comic book quote-unquote event, and he says, I'm not sure that any event has uh, since this has, top, uh, has topped it. 
I'm wondering if he's talking about like for him personally or or you know any you know for everybody because I know for me uh, I know that uh, nothing has ever topped Crisis. I, I'm not sure. You know, speaking very broadly, of course, I'm not sure anything has just generally either topped it. But uh... I don't think I don't think anything has topped it. But I think there have been events that have been enjoyable almost on that level. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, right. you know, we've talked about before. I love Invasion mm-hmm. as a as a as an event because it's the you know aliens invade the earth and the superheroes and supervillains have to fight against them mm-hmm. there is nothing in that sentence that is bad so and most of the crossovers to that were really good i liked legends as a legends story. i was just gonna say legends uh, yeah uh you know and you know zero hour for all of its kind of faults in terms of maybe some hiccups in the story itself having just recently reread all of the crossovers for that uh i I can say that that you know was you know was a a chance for some of the creators to really dig in and 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 tell some fun stories but for every legends and invasion uh and even i would say armageddon 2001 which i thought was a rather good series you have a genesis which hurts because i'm a john burton fan or (laughs) millennia millennia You know we're gonna we're gonna have to talk about that. You realize that, right? Nah, no, we've no, got we don't. we've got two months worth of books <laughs> that cross over into it. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but you 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 told me that Padme lived and didn't have to read Millennium. <laughs> That's what killed Padme. You know there have been all those articles recently about what really killed Padme. Uh, that some hipster thinks that he's clever and wrote. Uh, what really killed Padme is that on the way back from uh, Mustafar, she read Millennium, and that's where she lost the will to live. <laughs> you know what's funny is people keep taking that that Hitler movie and doing their own dubs, you know, their own, you know, the the what do you subtitles call it? subtitles on that and everything, and you know, some of those are hilarious. But why don't people do that with the with the no sequence of of episode three? I think that could be funny. <laughs> Just do, keep doing redubs of that with different things that he's screaming about. Millennium would be the perfect one to kick that off. That's a running gag on one of my other shows. I have that no clip at the ready for and, and people just heard it a couple seconds ago so there you go but yeah it's too easy too easy too easy all right let's move on to the next one here and we have one this is from robert gillis this says uh, crisis on infinite earths number one thank you actually it says crisis on infight earths but i'm i'm not <laughs> or, or maybe even... popeye wrote it and it's crisis on infink earths in thinkers, I love that. There should have been a Popeye Crisis uh, parody called Crisis on In, in Thinkers. That would have been awesome. I would have liked that. He says, hi, Michael. Oh, he's just addressing you? I'm not going to read this one then. No, I'm just kidding. He says, just wanted to let you know that in a recent uh, FCTC podcast, you mentioned you were doing an in-depth podcast on Crisis on Invite Earths with Scott Gardner. I, fu- I found it and downloaded it and loved it. I was there for it. In 1985, I was 21 at the time and read every issue as it came out. It was truly epic. And yeah, except for the quote-unquote major characters, I had no idea who most of these other characters were as well. 
I certainly understood the multiverse, it never really confused me, and I knew Earth-1, Earth-2, Earth-3, Earth-S, etc., but still had no idea who some of the other players were. I liked your observation that Ultraman, the evil Superman of Earth-3, went out as a hero, as a Superman, as his world ended. Never thought of it like that before. I'm loving the attention to detail and the behind-the-scenes discussion of what led to the crisis, and yes, if you could get Marv Wolfman or George Perez on the show, that would be cool. Anyway, just wanted to say great job, and I will, uh, and I will be looking for this one uh, for the next 11 months. Now on to FCTC number 181. Thank you for these excellent podcasts. As you know, I am uh, such a huge fan of FCTC with you and Jeffrey, and it's also cool to hear some of these other podcasts as well. And uh, he just signs it Robert. And again, that's from Robert Gillis. Alrighty, as our good friend Andy Leyland would say, we are going to knock it on the head for emails uh, right there. We've got actually a bunch more to go through, but we've got a comic to talk about. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Scott has the uh, the fortune, yes, the fortune to synopsizing Crisis. Wait, what? <laughs> crisis on Infinite Earths. Number, you wanted the odd numbered issue, sir. This is all you. <laughs> we will be right back. Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy surprises, Batman. It's really exciting. Greetings, citizens. Join me, your old bat chum, John S. Drew, on my journey to discover what it is I love about the classic 1966 Batman television series on the Batcave podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest host as we review the classic television series. There's a new episode every two weeks. Same bat time, same bat channel on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at thebatcavepodcast.com. Holy memoranda, folks. Make a note not to miss it. Good thinking. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, welcome back, folks, and we're going to go ahead and dive straight into this one. I have been looking forward to this one quite a bit because, uh, as Mike and I were just discussing during the break, this is one of my favorite single issues of the entire series. So, Crisis on Infinite Earths, number three. This is the January 1985 cover-dated issue. This was actually on sale on the stands March 7th, 1985. So, as we're recording this... Just about 30 years old, which is just whoa, crazy to think about. Original cover price on this was 75 cents. 
The cover is by George Perez, of course, and it depicts... Well, it's kind of it's kind of weird trying to describe exactly what this one is showing. It's basically the monitor, and he's got the whole world in his hands, and it's divided into little vignettes that are showing the the effects of the crisis in different time periods and uh, possibly even different Earths as well. You've got at the top of the screen, you've got the Legion of Superheroes. Well, basically, you have Brainiac Five and Dream Girl. And they're each looking at a set of monitors. And Brainiac 5 is looking at a monitor that has Cosmic Boy, Sun Boy, Lightning, Lass, and Wildfire fighting the crisis on his monitor. On Dream Girl's monitor, she's watching uh, Kid Psycho as this wall of rubble's falling over at him. Uh, you also have another little vignette that's uh, the Wild West characters. So you've got Simon, uh, Firebrand, and Green Lantern flying above... Uh, Bat Lash, you've got Johnny Thunder, uh, Jonah Hex, of course, uh, Nighthawk, and the Scalp Hunter. Also, Cyborg is in that scene. Then on the right-hand side of the cover, you have the Teen Titans and the Outsiders have teamed up. And they're observing another one of these uh, ghostly apparitions of the Flash appearing before him. Or is he a ghostly apparition, as we're going to find out in the story. And then at the bottom... You have one of the other teams of uh, Monitor Heroes. You've got Dr. Polaris, Geoforce, and the Blue Beetle seemingly side-by-side side with Sergeant Rock, the Haunted Tank, and the Losers fighting in World War II. So just a fantastic cover. Mm-hmm. I know we've said this before about the, the poster idea, but man, I would love to have a poster of this one or a t-shirt. I, I just think... I mean, I think all the covers to the series are great, don't get me wrong, but this is one of my personal favorites. You know, it's funny because right now uh, Warner Brothers has their Warner Brothers archives thing through Amazon, or uh, mm-hmm. I think it's through Amazon, uh, which if you're going to order through Amazon, please go to 2TrueFreaks.com and go through the uh, Amazon link. Always going to work that in. <laughs> but uh, they have that thing where basically instead of investing in putting out a bunch of dvd box sets that may or may not sell it's basically print to order you want the shazam Mm -hmm. series uh from the 70s or you want the second third and fourth season of superboy it's a little more expensive but those aren't available commercially anywhere else and you're getting it right from warner brothers right so the quality is going to be at least good i'm wondering why dc doesn't do this with a poster idea where basically they set up a thing where you order whatever cover you want as a poster that they print, they produce, and they get all the money for. I don't know if they have some kind of rights issue, like they would have to kick some to the artist, but it seems to me with all of the, like a couple years ago, Walmart was stuffed to the gills with... uh, Merchant like back to school merchandise that had one of them that I bought a bunch of was Adventures of Superman number four twenty four, which mm-hmm. is that great Jerry Ordway cover uh, with eagle on his arm and all that kind of stuff. And there was uh, folders and there was a poster and there was all this other stuff. Yeah, I got the folder that was the old uh, Justice League of America cover by Perez. Mm-hmm. And they did a T shirt of that too. Uh, so why not do that directly? I mean, you're printing. You know, maybe it's a little more expensive. Maybe it's, you know, $15 instead of like, you know, 6 bucks, which you would normally pay. But if it's a if it's an image you really want and you want kind of a good high quality thing, I mean, it's like they're leaving money on the table. 
mm-hmm. with this kind of stuff. Well, people will pay it. I think, you know, as evidenced by that Crisis t-shirt, people will pay it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never spent that amount of money for a t-shirt other than something that maybe I bought, you know, as a tourist item, you know, at a theme park or whatever. I've never spent, uh, spent more than, I think, maybe 15 bucks on a, on a t-shirt ever. Well, that Crisis t-shirt was crazy expensive, but it's awesome, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I had to have it. So, yeah, people will, will pay that money. You know, the other thing I thought of, you know, if, if I can't get a poster, I can't get a t-shirt. The other thing that I think, uh, again, you know, you talk about leaving money at the table. All right, so this is a 12-issue maxi, right? Mm-hmm. What's the other awesome thing you could make out of all these covers? A calendar. A calendar. Why is there not a crisis? This is the 30th anniversary. Why is there not a 30th anniversary crisis calendar? Why does that not exist? That would be awesome. Maybe we should maybe we should pitch this to DC Comics. Yeah, I think that's a cool idea. You make custom calendars, right? Yes. There you go. I want one. (laughs) All right. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to dig into this issue. It's okay. Strap in, folks, because this is rather a long synopsis. I apologize, but it had to be done this way. In his satellite, which exists somewhere between all space and time, the Monitor examines the Luther child, who has grown from infancy to adolescence in the span of mere days. But the Monitor's fascination with the boy comes not from his rapid aging, but rather from his anomalous makeup. He consists of both positive and negative matter, existing in one form, a seeming impossibility. The Monitor ponders what could have changed the boy when his father sent him away from the dying Earth-3 and crashing through the dimensional barriers to Earth-1. Somehow, the Monitor feels this child may hold the key to the terror at hand since he somehow is able to bridge this universe and the one that threatens to swallow them all. Harbinger, who stands by observing all this, calls to the Monitor, but he doesn't answer her. Is he ignoring me, she wonders, or does he suspect the truth? that I am now doing the bidding of his enemy. Harbinger leaves and checks in with said nameless enemy, still depicted as merely a shadowy outline. The enemy is aware of the Monitor's plans and orders her to kill the Luthor child. The dead can present no threat. Earth One, our future. The Flash, fastest man alive, runs through a fierce downpour thinking to himself that he's only lived here, meaning the future, for a month now, and it has been a month of happiness and hope. But now he is forced out of retirement to deal with natural disasters and upheavals that the weather-correcting machines cannot keep up with. It is as if the world were coming apart. A sudden volcanic eruption knocks the Scarlet Speedster off his feet, and as he looks up, he sees a wall of pure white rushing toward him, absorbing everything in its path. It's coming right at me. Only one hope, one chance. And the flash relaxes his vibrations, keeping him rooted to this future time period and slowly fades from view. Marv Wolfman, writer-editor, George Perez penciler, Dick Giordano and Mike DiCarlo inkers, John Costanza letterer, Anthony Tolland colors. Oblivion Upon Us is the title of this particular story. Earth 1, July 1985, and the end of the world is at hand. Present for the occasion are the Teen Titans and the Outsiders. Their powers are almost without limit. Unfortunately, they won't be enough. Nightwing, astride his red motorcycle, 
looks up to see a wall of pure white descending on the city, slowly absorbing the spire of the Empire State Building. He orders Cole, the crystal-spinning new member of the team, to form a barrier to separate them from the civilians and allow them room to work. Katana of the Outsiders wonders aloud what use her sword is against a threat like this, but Nightwing assures her that she is needed and orders her to rally the Outsiders and Titans and keep the panic down. Metamorpho, stretched to his absolute limits, holds a crumbling tenement building together while Cole spins a crystal safety slide for the folks trapped inside to escape down. The other heroes all lend their part to either trying to battle the antimatter wall or rescue civilians. On a rooftop, Wonder Girl braces herself and holds her magic lasso steady to allow folks to climb down it and escape their crumbling homes. Below, Nightwing watches his team's rescue efforts through his binoculars and sees a massive wall behind Wonder Girl begin to give way. Oh no, he cries. Donna doesn't see it. Probably can't hear it over the screaming. Dick cries out to his friend and she turns, but there is simply not enough time to react. The entire building topples over onto the terror-stricken heroine just as a red and blue blur streaks into the view, headed into the path of the collapsing structure. Nightwing is forced to watch helplessly as tons of brick and mortar rain down upon his friend. But, out of the rubble, a figure slowly rises, his outstretched arms and cape protecting the female type. Sorry to push you down like that, Wonder Girl, but I had no choice. You okay? I think so, says Donna. I never expected to see you here, Superman. She asks him if he has any idea what's happening, to which the Man of Steel replies, not even the foggiest. Nightwing, having witnessed Donna's rescue, reports to Jericho and Katana that Superman has saved her. Then all is well, the outsider asks? Not even close, Katana. They turn, startled, as the Batman emerges from the shadows. Something's out there, and we don't know how much time we have. Metamorpho and Cole return to join in the discussion and ask if anyone's had any ideas. Starfire's answer is simply, ATTACK! And she lays into the antimatter wall with all of her starbolt power, but it is harmlessly absorbed. Superman, of all people, restrains her and tries to talk her down. My world was conquered, she cries. I'll not let this happen to this planet too. You can't understand. I won't let this planet die. Believe me, Starfire, says Superman. I understand all too well. As the others compare notes, Katana spots and directs Batman's attention to a new arrival. Not again, says the Dark Knight detective as he witnesses the Flash fade into view. However, Batman quickly realizes that this is not a ghost or image as before, but the real Flash. Flash tries to warn his friend that something is happening in the future, that everything's unraveling, fraying at the seams, but suddenly a weird glow surrounds the speedster. Batman, fearing he must save Flash before the vision he saw comes true, attempts to save his teammate, but Jericho senses that if Batman touches him, then whatever it is that surrounds the Flash will affect Batman too, and so he tackles Batman and knocks him clear just as the glow seems to pull the Flash apart before the horror-stricken eyes of the other assembled heroes. In space, far beyond our solar system, the new Brainiac observes the antimatter wall swiftly sweeping through the universe, destroying all that it touches. Brainiac assesses the situation and decides that since his prime directive is his own survival, then in order to ensure that survival, he must save the universe. In order to do that, he'll require assistance. And so he sets his brain ship on a course for Earth and the one called 
Luthor. Late Spring, 1944. The war in Europe will be over in weeks, but here, in the small nation of Markovia, the end may as well be years away. Markovia has fallen victim to the Third Reich, and its citizens have prayed for help. That help now arrives, but not in any way that they could have possibly expected. As Sergeant Rock and his soldiers gun down Nazi troops, the haunted tank rolls into town. Lieutenant Jeb Stewart's men don't know what to make of the scene. Snow in the middle of June, an oversized cockroach, actually the Blue Beetle's bug, flying overhead, and now that... that thing, the Monitor's cosmic tuning fork, ahead of them. What is it? Just then, the Confederate General Stewart, whose spectral presence gives the haunted tank its name, appears before Jeb and tells him that this day, the losers shall lose, and never be seen again. But the lieutenant doesn't understand what the apparition meant. Meanwhile, Bulldozer and Four Eyes of Easy Company witness the arrival of Dr. Polaris and Geoforce. Dr. Polaris is surprised to find himself in World War II, but Geoforce, who will one day be born in this country and knows of the Nazi slaughter of his people, sees this as an opportunity to pay the bastards back. He and Dr. Polaris lay into the Nazis as Rock and Easy Company look on, wondering just how crazy this war is going to get. From the bug, Blue Beetle observes Geoforce's rampage against the Nazis, and while he can hardly blame him, feels compelled to remind his teammates that they aren't here to fight World War II, but to protect the Monitor's machine. Geoforce speaks to his people in their own language, ordering them to go, hide, and that he will protect them now. At the Tuning Fork, a Nazi battalion have claimed the machine, thinking it is a new American weapon. The losers attack from behind and create a diversion that allows Stuart and Rock and their men to take the tower. While Johnny Cloud mows down Nazis, Captain Storm tries to assess the Monitor's machine and is attacked by a shadow demon. Hearing his blood-curdling scream, Rock and Easy Company, along with Geoforce, Polaris, and the Blue Beetle, rush to his aid, arriving in time only to witness the deaths of the losers at the hands of the shadow creatures. Seeing Gunner, Sarge, Johnny Cloud, and Captain Storm taken out, Rock, Easy, and Stuart open up on the shadows, but their weapons prove useless. Stuart saves Rock from being absorbed by one of the demons as he stood stunned by the sudden death of his man, Flower. Geoforce and Polaris team up and using their combined powers prove at last that their enemy can be destroyed as they shatter a shadow demon. Beetle descends from his ship, wondering why the Monitor brought him, a hero with no special powers, to this fight. Perhaps for his scientific prowess, he figures, and lands on the fork to attempt to study it, when he is likewise attacked by a shadow demon. His shoulder is burned, but he is not destroyed. Instead, the demon is. It suddenly explodes, and the Blue Beetle is left to assume that the mystical properties of his scarab, given to him by Dan Garrett, the original Blue Beetle, are what saved him. Despite this, the Beetle realizes he is outgunned and outclassed by the horde of demons descending upon him. Attempting to use his acrobatic skill, the injured hero tries to stay one step ahead of the enemy while he figures out a plan to fight back that doesn't involve them touching him when he slips and falls from the tower. Fortunately, the Monitor, who had hoped to utilize the Beetle's scarab, is watching and saves him from the fall by transporting him back to his own time and place. At the sight of the Great Disaster, Superman of Earth-2 admits to Dawnstar of the Legion that he is frightened. You said you're married, didn't you? She asks. I am, and I may never see my wife again. 
Meanwhile, Salivar tends to Commandy's wounds. The boy is concerned for his new friend that the ape was injured rescuing him. Salivar collapses, and while Commandy begs him not to die, the simian monarch disappears in a flash of light. What the grieving Commandy cannot know, however, is that Salivar was likewise returned to his rightful time and place as well by the monitor. In Coyote, Texas, in the year 1879, Bartholomew Aloysius Lash is thrown head over heels through yet another set of batwing doors. You lie in two-time and slither and sidewind and son of a snake, cries the large red-headed woman who put him out. If I ever catch you messing with my daughter again, I'll drill an extra hole in that your damn pretty face with a 22 caliber lead. Batlash rides out of town thinking to himself that he'd give up on women right now if they weren't so soft. But the lovable scoundrel didn't come all the way to Coyote just for a warm embrace. He'd received a note from Kiwanote, whom white men call the Scalp Hunter, that something peculiar was going on here. And, riding into a clearing, Lash sees just what his friend was talking about as another of the monitor's tuning forks comes into view protruding out of the top of an abandoned mine. Taking no chances, Lash descends into the mine, gun in hand, but is heard by Scalp Hunter who calls to him and assures him that he is in the presence of friends. Lash recognizes Jonah Hex, of course, and the others, Nighthawk and Johnny Thunder, not the dorky one from the JSA, introduce themselves. Kiwanote says that he was with Nighthawk when they found the machine and that they figured they could use some help, thus why Lash and the others were summoned. Kiwanote notices that no birds fly near the tuning fork and no, no animals approach it. Johnny Thunder says sometimes you can see shadows moving across it. Hex just wonders why they didn't call the army. Nighthawk and Kiwanote say it as if they were told to summon him and the others. Nighthawk says he's going to go get some weapons, just in case. When a voice from above calls, you guys better join him. This ain't no place for John Wayne rejects. Taking the four figures descending upon them uh, from above to be spooks, Lash opens fire, but one round bounces harmlessly off J Green Lantern John Stewart's ring bubble while the other two rounds melt before they can injure Firebrand. She, the Lantern, Cyborg of the New Teen Titans, and Simon alight, and Hex chastises Lash for not recognizing the costume on the quote-unquote colored man as that of another guy they met who was a quote-unquote lantern or something. If you're not spirits, asks Thunder, who are you? We're from another time, brought here to save our world, Firebrand explains. Just then the, de the shadow demons attack. The western heroes open up with their six shooters while Firebrand cooks them and Cyborg blasts them with a million decibels of white sound. Jon Stewart, though, is distraught to find that his ring, which still has half a day's charge, isn't working. He is saved by Jonah Hex, who tackles him and knocks him aside just as a shadow demon attacks. The mine starts to cave in. Outside, Nighthawk looks up to see the antimatter wall moving into the town of Coyote, absorbing everything in its path as it sweeps through. Nighthawk spurs his horse, headed into the fray to offer whatever assistance he can to the panic-stricken townsfolk, but a lightning bolt spooks his horse and he is thrown. Terrified, yet defiant to the last, Nighthawk draws his gun and begins pumping rounds into the wall of white as it slowly swallows everything, himself included. Metropolis the 30th century. Wildfire, Cosmic Boy, Lightning Lass, and Sun Boy fire uselessly into the encroaching wall of antimatter. In Legion headquarters, Dream Girl wonders aloud to Brainiac 5 why she didn't dream of this. 
Brainiac 5 calls to Kid Psycho, asking how the British evacuation is going, but receives no answer. Monel and Element Lad, on evac duty, attempt to raise him on their comms, unaware that the young hero has been knocked unconscious and is subsequently absorbed as the unrelenting antimatter wall sweeps over him. It appears everywhere now, in every time period. Ancient Atlantis, on every Earth, the Old West, nothing is spared, all while one man watches. He's moved quicker than expected, bemoans the Monitor. Instead of days, only hours remain. The Earths are doomed. Still, my machines are in place. My agents are at their post. It is time for my plan to begin. Wrong, old fool, a voice cries. And in a stunning final panel, Harbinger, hands aglow with energy, eyes black and soulless, shouts, It is time for you to die. Next issue. This is the big one. The end of the multiverse. When worlds die. <laughs> and that'll be our final episode, right? Because wow, world, the worlds die. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> Hope you've enjoyed the show, folks. Next one's the last one. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> oh, I need to give my voice a rest after all that. Well, I... so Mike, what do you got, man? <laughs> Uh, like you, I, I, I like this cover quite a bit. Uh, it's amazing the sheer number of characters that are recognizable. Uh, mm-hmm. That Perez kind of, you know, he, he crams a whole lot of gram into this cover. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I am kind of wondering the where the hands actually are in relation to the head. But, you know, that, that's like a minor complaint. Uh, Mark Wade. Uh, on Twitter recently uh, went on a tirade and it was kind of amusing because I agree with him how the UPC box ruined covers and this is a good example of where you know because the one I have is from the direct market because it has the 50th anniversary logo yeah uh, but he's kind of right you know that that does kind of throw off some of the image a little bit uh, still it, it's it's a stunning stunning cover uh, I, I kind of it kind of makes you feel like Flash is going to be bigger in it than he is, but, you know, I'm not going to complain about that. Uh, the first sequence, the first couple of pages, kind of nice, a, a little nice calm before the storm, so to speak. You know, we learn a little bit more about the Luther baby, uh, who is aged now to looking about 10 years old. Uh, I, I like how the antimatter part of him is kind of covering his naughty bits, which I guess is, is, is good because he's a kid. <laughs> Uh, here's an example of where if you read this in the trade paperback or the absolute edition, uh, you actually had a leg up on the individual issues because the text on page three, we've been complaining about this the entire time, but the white text on the black background is really hard to read in the, in the original issue. Uh, so it's nice. Uh, the lettering's a little off in the reprints, but at the same time, at least you can read the text clearly. So... Page four, love the page with the Flash, uh, mainly because it, you know, even though we've seen him, this kind of sets up his eventual fate, where you know he was, uh, he had been retired, you know, he and Iris went off into the sunset at the end of Flash number three fifty, uh, even though Iris in that issue was mostly in the body of an overweight man, 
but you really have to read the the trial of the Flash to get <laughs> to get the full story on that. That just added a whole different perspective to this story for me. But uh, no, well, by the time he was in the future, she was you know herself again. But still, hey, I'm not going to judge. But <laughs> but a month of happiness, a month of hope, and then it's pretty much all over, and he goes to the present. Now this. I almost said this is my favorite part of the book. The set pieces in this issue are amazing. And this is mm-hmm. the first major like action beat. One, I love to see the uh, the Outsiders and the Teen Titans together. Because they're the two kind of big teen teams of Earth-1. So it's cool to see them uh, teaming up. On page 5, there is a guy running... A uh, gentleman with a smaller boombox and the hat's flying off his head in the bottom part of the bottom panel. It says, uh, belly dancers do it better. Uh, George Perez's wife is a belly dancer. Belly dancer, So yeah. I am assuming that's why it's there. Uh, every <laughs> time you said metamorpho in your synopsis, I hummed metamorpho, metamorpho. Metamorpho. Which is how I knew who he was. <laughs> Very good. I met metamorpho on that Justice League record years before I ever read him in, in a comic. Uh, good to see cannon fodder. I mean, Cole. Uh, did some, <laughs> that's what she was created for. She was created to die. Yeah, we're going to discuss that in a so, little bit. Yeah. Uh, page seven. I I, I know that uh, Jeanette Kahn especially wanted less female characters with long hair, but holy crap, Halo looks so much better with longer mm-hmm. hair than the. I mean, it's there's nothing wrong with a little punk cut. She got later, but still, I, I look at this panel. I'm like, wow, she looks absolutely gorgeous. Of course, she's kind of a freaked out character, anyways, with her origin. So, <laughs> such a strange story there, and such a happy character. The inclusion of Superman on page seven is awesome, especially when he stands up on page eight. Yes, and on the same page, we get an equally good introduction of Batman in the story. And on page eight, I was really struck by the uh, the conversation between Starfire and Superman about how, you know, they've bought, both lost a world, so they don't want to lose this one. Uh, and I and I really like I like that. Jericho proves to be not useless by knocking Batman down on page nine. So yay, <laughs> Jericho! I, I was never I never really hated that character, but at the same time, I have never been a Jericho fan. So. I mean, I've read all of, you know, New Teen Titans and New Titans, so I kind of followed his arc, but I never really liked him all that much, so... Right. No, you're not alone in that. Uh, page 10, always good to see Brainiac. And this is, artistically, this is one of the most, I don't want to say stunning pages, but it looks completely different from every other page on the book. The circuitry, the coloring, I mean, it really stands out and gives you that cold machine-like uh, feeling. And uh, you get to see the skull ship, so I have no problem with that whatsoever. The world That's what it was called, the skull ship. I was, when I was writing the synopsis, I was trying to remember what it was called, and I ended up calling it the brain ship, but I, was not, I didn't think that that was right. That's what it was, the skull ship, I forgot. My bad. Really like the World War II sequence. And this is this is one of those things that... Crisis being a celebration of the DC Universe. Th- this gives a chance for a lot of the war characters that don't normally cross over into the superhero world. A chance to kind of shine and give them 
some of them their 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 final due, but just a, a chance for them to to like really strut their stuff, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The uh, I love Doctor Polaris during this entire sequence. He's a villain, but he is just as willing to you know killing Nazis is 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 as good as for him as fighting superheroes. It's great. I don't know what that says about his opinions of superheroes, but he doesn't go to fight the American side. He's definitely uh, <laughs> on the allies uh, side with this one. And I kind of, I kind of dug that, that uh, it gave him a chance to be heroic, even if, uh, even if he is not in any way, shape, form a hero, the death of the losers on page 15 and 16, you know, they're brought into the the story. They're all introduced. They all get named, and yet, but they're there for like 30 seconds, and yet Wolfman really makes that death mean something. Like, you feel something for them being wiped out by the, uh, by the, by the shadow demons and such. And so when Easy Company and the Haunted Tank kind of try to avenge them, it, it means even more. And even Flower's death. And this is why Flower's death got me this time. Because just a couple pages earlier, on page 13, he's fi- you know trying to save a woman. Dr. Polaris helps him. And he goes, Sergeant Rock, nobody hurt here. And then just several pages later, he's gone. And right. that was such a great dramatic moment that this character that you thought was safe is not safe. So, Blue Beetle, always good to see Blue Beetle strut of stuff. Uh, I, you know, there, there's a lot here that isn't said and not really, not really gone into, but having since read the Blue Beetle series, it kind of makes more sense with the whole Scarab thing. As much as Perez has been drawing Superman to look epic, I think the coloring of the original issues kind of hurts the Earth 2 Superman on pages 18 and 19 of the original comic. Because, especially on page 18, I don't know about your copy, my copy, Superman's standing there, he looks awesome, but the coloring, it's its like it's blurry, almost. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, it doesn't hurt the scene, it doesn't hurt the page, but it always, it, it's why I kind of prefer to read this in the collected edition, uh, rather than see, you know, rather than to see some of the mistakes made, just because of the printing of the time. And... Page 19, Commandy, you know, suffering the loss of Solovar. Again, I felt something for that. So it's just this is such an emotional issue. Reading the next sequence in the Old West, I knew who these guys were now. Yay! Um, <laughs> no, uh, it, it really reminds me, in retrospect, of the novel Trail of Time. Right. Because except for Nighthawk, all of these characters team up again in that book. And my only, this is going to be me putting on my podcaster analytical hat for a second. Okay, it's the 1800s. A letter took days, if not weeks, to get to somebody. I had the same note. How in the heck did Scalp Hunter get word to Batlash that fast? How would he even know where Batlash was? You know? Because they're 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 all itinerant. They they all move around. So I'm not going to put too much thought into it. I just wanted to mention it there. And boy, I love seeing these characters. Uh, Nighthawk would eventually be retconned uh, around the time of Infinite Crisis 
to be one of the previous lives of Hawkman. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I actually really liked. That that was one of those uh, retcons that I that I really kind of appreciated. That Haw- Nighthawk and Cinnamon were Kate were Carter and Shiera in a past life. It just uh, one it, it just delves into DC history, which I'm into, and two it just it just works for me. Uh, I love. <laughs> I love that Jonah Hex is the one to say only he wasn't no colored man. Uh, which is kind of interesting that they... It shows how progressive these characters... Well, Scalp Hunter would be no matter what. But it shows how kind of progressive these characters are for their time period. That mm-hmm. John Stewart and Cyborg show up and there isn't a big deal made out of it. You know? right? So, uh, I mean... Jonah Hex wouldn't care. He kind of identifies with the underdog. Uh, Scalp Hunter's story is one of isolation and feeling like he doesn't belong in either world. So, you know, he would probably feel more likely to be on their side. And Batlash and Nighthawk are just good people, as is Johnny Thunder. So, Johnny Thunder is the only one when I was looking at the art that I had to be reminded who he was because. He doesn't have a very distinctive outfit uh, compared no. to the others. So, and it's interesting here that this isn't everybody. I mean, yeah. there are, there are other ones that they could have used Cinnamon. as well, like Powwow Smith and Cinnamon. Uh, it's it's El interesting Diablo. that they are not here. Yeah, El Diablo. Yeah, I forgot all about him. Yeah, there but, yeah. was there was an issue of Guy Gardner Warrior during Zero Hour because mm-hmm. uh, Zero Hour basically mostly focused on time anomalies. Uh, it wasn't like Crisis, which was kind of celebrating the DC Universe. It had a very specific purpose to it, to kind of right some of the wrongs that had cropped up since Crisis. And so, hardly any of them dealt with, like, the other aspects of the DC Universe. But Bo Smith wrote, wrote this great issue where Guy Gardner, Supergirl, Steel, and the Batgirl that had been running around in Zero Hour actually jumped through time. So they see Anthro and Java in prehistoric times. And they went to the Old West where all of these characters plus El Diablo and Cinnamon were there. And that sequence was drawn by Phil Jimenez. If you have not... Find this issue of Guy Gardner, the Zero Hour issue. It is amazing. It is a really fun... If you're liking all of the, the shout-outs in this, in this series... Read that, because he also gets into World War II characters, he gets into sci-fi characters. It's a fantastic issue. I can't recommend it enough. Do you know what issue that is? Because I'm curious if I have this issue or not. Because I've got precious few issues of uh, Garg... That was the Warrior book, right? Yes, uh, that was number 24. Guy Gardner, number 24. i got to see if I've got this one in my collection. I do not. I'm going to have to acquire it. Do you know if Hex is in that issue? Uh, Jonah Hex is in that issue. Okay. He doesn't have a speaking role, but he's there. I'm going to have to get that. So, it is a cameo more than an appearance, just to tell you. Jon Stewart losing the uh, juice in his ring on page 22 was a really effective moment for me. That suddenly Mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's in the middle of the Old West... There's a shadow demon approaching, and he doesn't have any powers anymore. That would scare the crap out of anybody, I would think. Oh yeah. So, uh, Nighthawks, well, especially being, you know, being a black guy, and this is 1879. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's yeah. Uh, page 23, the death of Nighthawk was just as effective as the death of the 
losers. Uh, again, when I first read this, I didn't know who he was outside of, oh, he must have been a DC Western character. But I still kind of felt something that, to the end, he was trying to help people. He was trying to be the hero. And, you know, all he could do there before he finally goes is to fire, you know, his six-shooter into an antimatter, antimatter wall. And this is on the reread where I'm getting more into the emotion of the story. Right. Whereas before, I would read it, but I, it'd be like I'd be watching events. You know, I'd be enjoying it. But this time out, because we're, we're looking so closely at it, I am really getting into, you know, the sheer amount of pathos that Wolfman is and Perez are bringing to each death. I could care less about Kid Psycho, you know? Not... Not even a, a legionnaire that I particularly recognize uh, right off the bat, but you know him dying and Element Land calling for him, that 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 had an impact on me, and I was really you know by the time we get to the last page, it's like oh it's over, <laughs> I want more, mm-hmm. I want to see what happens, especially with that final page. Harbinger looks amazing in that final panel, mm-hmm. even though she has heels. That's a relatively new uh, sticking point with me because I've talked to so many women that have trouble walking around in high heels and it bugs them to see in like action movies where the female hero has, you know, is wearing like high heel boots that that doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Uh, They're they're difficult to get around in, even more difficult to fight in. But, you know, this is it. This is, you know, we're getting into what potentially could be the end of the story. You know, there, there's there's high drama going on here, and I just I'm just really into it. I loved this issue more so than any other time that I've read it. I loved this issue going through it for this episode. And that's pretty much all I, I have. A few notes on ads, but I figure we can do that after um, after you're done with your notes. All right, let me scroll back up because I was kind of following along with you uh, in my notes with your notes. So. Uh... Yeah, as I said at the very beginning of this, this is one of my absolute favorite issues of the entire series. It's going to be curious when when it's all said and done and we we go through the entire series. Uh, I'm sure we'll be you know recapping and looking back and naming you know what, so what was our favorite issue and our favorite moments and that sort of thing. But uh, just off the top of my head, uh, this one has always been one of my absolute favorites. Uh, it, it's it, you know it's made that much more so now because. Now it has two characters who are are two of my absolute favorite DC characters. But at the time, I really didn't know who they were. So it's it's interesting that this has always been one of my favorites long before I I became attached to these particular characters. Um, Again, the cover, just absolutely awesome. And looking through the absolute, you know, I can't believe that this never really occurred to me before. But the absolute edition, when it has the covers... You know, the cover images that separate the chapters of the book, the covers are reprinted in here with no... It has the logo, but none of the cover copy, none of the bannering, uh, you know, the price uh, thing is not there, and the UPC is not there as well. So you get the full... And of course, the Absolute's in an oversized edition, so you get the full cover art in these chapters in between man is that just gorgeous it it just makes this cover just that much more awesome to me but i've always liked this cover great cover uh yeah we'll talk about the ads after that was my next note was the inside front cover but we'll talk about that after page one the monitor's position the way he's sitting 
and the machine that he's sitting in really reminds me very strongly of that image. And I hope you know the one I'm talking about, Mike. It was a, it's a semi-famous Garcia Lopez image of Superman seated at his supercomputer. Do you know the one I'm talking yes, about? Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm not sure where that image first appeared. I've seen it, you know, a, a lot of different places, but I, I always love that picture of him. He's just sitting very casually in his chair with the supercomputer, and this just so reminds me of that. Um, monitor, can you give the kid some pants? He's gone from being a, a you know an infant to an adolescent, so he's a teenager. I don't want to see that. Give the kid some clothes already. You know, I'm starting to seriously wonder about the monitor and his so-called plan to save everybody because, you know, it's nothing like, I mean, maybe this is the pot calling the kettle black because I am a classic procrastinator, but, you know, it's upon us, dude. The world's about to end, you know, it's here. And he keeps saying things like, hmm, maybe I can use this kid to help save. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I thought you said plan. Plan to me means you sat down, you thought it out, it's all set. But it seems very fluid here that, you know, it's kind of a plan on the fly kind of thing. Uh, page five, panel, or excuse me, page three, rather, page three, panel five. In the original book, the dialogue doesn't make a lot of sense because the shadowy villain says no go do as i command what it's supposed to say of course is now go that is corrected uh in the absolute edition uh also i looked to make sure that uh that you know the differences were corrected elsewhere i think that basically the the and i could be wrong about this but this is my understanding the absolute really is for all intents and purposes, a reprint. It's a reprint of the original hardcover edition. So when I say that it was corrected in the absolute, actually it was corrected in that hardcover edition and then reprinted here in the absolute. But the absolute is what uh, I'm using to go through uh, looking you know, at the issues as we do this. Along with, uh, I do have an original uh, copy, you know, the single issue copies as well, just to compare and contrast between the two. Let's see, where am I in my note here? Uh, I agree with you about uh, trying to read the white lettering on the black background. That's that's just frustrating. I, I like it so much better in the uh, in the reprinted editions. It's just easier to read. You know, while I've never been much of a fan of the Barry Allen Flash, I agree with you. This page four is great. I've always enjoyed seeing the Flash as depicted by George Perez. I really like this page because strangely, it takes me back to JLA number one ninety three which is just one of those classic issues I can remember picking up off the stands just because it was a George Perez cover that caught my eye. It may have been the first one that ever really caught my eye. And it's one that has the entire team battling the tornado tyrant, I think was his name. And so whenever I see particularly like the flash by Perez, cause he didn't draw the flash all that much to my memory it just automatically takes me back to that issue because I always liked how he drew the flash in, in that particular one. And that whole feeling, that whole nostalgia feeling about JLA 193 might lend in a lot to why I like this issue so much because you get so many of the same characters are in this issue that are in that JLA story. I'm wondering, is this the first mention of Red Skies? Have we gotten a mention of it yet? Because the flash mentions it here on page four at the bottom. I believe about the Red we Skies. have. 
Have we gotten it yeah. before? I was trying to remember that. Uh, pages five and six. You know, I hope that that kids today, and by kids today, what I really mean is you know younger collectors, younger readers. I hope that they can appreciate how truly awesome and groundbreaking these two pages were, particularly page five, because you know we've come to see this. This has become kind of a thing in comics. You know, the all the heroes of the world banded together. You know, facing the the end. You know, in some uh, new comics event, you know, and we're getting comics events fairly regularly now. So this has become a thing. And George Perez has even had, a, 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 you know, his hand in a good number of them since this time. But this was kind of the first time that it was this big of a thing where, you know, this is literally they are looking up at the end of the world coming right at them. And I just there's something about particularly page five that just remains you know one of those panels that just gives me goosebumps i just love this i I love the whole framing sequence here of uh you see the antimatter wall moving into earth one you get that stunned reaction shot of the just the citizenry looking up and seeing that wall of white and then slowly the spire of the empire state building begins to dissolve i just there's something about the way it's staged and this very eclectic mix of heroes because you know, both, <clears throat> pardon me, both teams are already made up of kind of, you know, they're kind of each consisting of kind of that oddball mix of characters. And then you're throwing both of those teams together as well. So you've got this really strange mix of, you know, Nightwing and Metamorpho and Halo and just all these different weird characters all thrown together. I, there's something about this that just so speaks to me. I really like this stuff. It's great, great panels here. Uh, I love how Nightwing comes in and uh, takes charge of both teams. You know, of course, having been, you know, originally Robin and all, I'm sure he's channeling a lot of Batman there, but it's cool how everybody kind of looks to him as the mm-hmm. leader in this position. I love that panel on page six of Metamorpho all spread out, holding the building together. I mean, you got to imagine that this is pretty much taxing for him, that you know, I, I don't remember him ever creating something out of himself that was quite that big before, but... I think it's neat. I'm not going to try to nitpick it or anything. I just I think it's a great looking panel how he's shoring up the building with his own body like that. But you know, there's the thing about this is that there's just some you know there's no other way to say it. There's just some serious oh shit factor here that you know we we've seen how this plays out with the other you know we've seen this happened a couple of other times by this point, particularly in issue one, you know, we saw the animator wave sweep in and devour an earth, you know, an, an earth that we didn't even get the name of. And then we saw it come in and do this to earth three. Now we're seeing now it's earth one. And this to me, this is where the story starts to really ramp up. That's one of the reasons I like this issue so much is that we know how this plays out. And now we have to watch our heroes, the ones that we truly know and love and identify with, combat this thing that we already watched devour, say, like the crime syndicate and everything that they were trying to do, proving fruitless. Now we're seeing our heroes facing the same situation. And, you know, I remember reading this for the first time as a kid and just having that sense of, oh, shit, you know, (laughs) because we'd, we'd heard, you know, that. People were going to die. Things were going to change. You know, this this was all headed, you know, so there was very much this sense of you didn't know where the story was going. You didn't know, you know, who was going to live, who was going to die. It's it's almost that 
that walking dead factor of nobody's safe. And I like that, you know, even rereading this now, I still knowing fully where the story goes. I still can get that sense as I'm reading the story, that sense of danger to every character that's involved in the story. I think that's great. Pages seven and eight. You know, if I could only own two pages from crisis on infinite earths, it may very well be these two pages. Uh, This is just, this is such awesome stuff. I love everything on both of these two pages. Uh, I love Wonder Girl. You know, she uh, wasn't my first comic book crush, but she was probably the biggest one I ever had. She just looks fantastic in, in every shot on both of these two pages. I love the scene that that plays out on these two pages of uh, the wall crumbling and Dick seeing it through the, the binoculars. He's helpless to do anything. He hollers to her. She turns just as uh, the wall crumbles and you see Superman streaking in, mm-hmm. you know, the whole fast, you know, faster than a speeding bullet thing. But he's moving so fast that Nightwing can't see him. So he doesn't realize that Superman even arrived until Superman rises out of the rubble. Now, at the top of page eight, those first two panels, I couldn't tell you why exactly. But you know what the feel I get from that is actually burn. I know it's Perez, but somehow it gives me the total feel of of Burns post-crisis Superman. It's something about the the stance. It's something about the cape and the rubble and all. It's just fantastic. I I love, love those two panels. Probably my favorite two panels of of the entire series is just that shot. Because it it not only reminds me of, of the Burns Superman that we're going to get, you know, which was still in the future, of course, at this point. But it also, with the way that Superman has spread his arms out and is holding his cape and he's, he's using his body as a shield, takes me right back to the old Fleischer cartoons. Because mm-hmm. I know there's that one moment, and I think it happens a couple of times actually, but I know there's at least one moment where uh, there's the, I think it's the Mad Scientist one where he goes to dump like molten lava or lead or something onto Lois and Superman streaks in and stretches out his cape yep. and uses his own body to, to protect her. So it all just kind of runs down his own back. Kind of get the same feeling right here. I love that. I think it's just great. I've also, you know, Wolfman really has a feel for the different voices of the different characters. And I love that the first thing Superman says to Wonder Girl is an apology. He apologizes for pushing her down to save her life. I love that. Sorry I had to push you down, Wonder Girl, but I had no choice. I just love that. You know? I mean, I, I understand that, that so Superman, but do you have to have both of your hands on my breasts right now? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? That is yeah, so no, I, Superman. I know what you mean. It is, I, I, just, oh, it's, I, I love this. You know, he has... You know, because of the scope of this thing, he has to have an economy of words and, and dialogue and everything. But when he gives the characters their moments, they feel authentic. And I, and this feels very authentic Superman to me. And I, I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, again, with page eight, Superman and Batman on scene, you know that the shit just got serious at this point. <laughs> They're both here now. Uh, I love the scene of Superman calming Starfire and trying to talk her down from just, you know, wasting her energy and wasting her power and possibly even killing herself as this wall's moving closer and closer to them. 
page nine, panel one, that shocked Batman really looks very Neil Adams to me. And I appreciate that. I, I really like that panel of Batman. Uh, page nine as well, a little bit further down where Metamorpho is reacting to the flash being pulled apart. He says, blue blazes, not him, not him. Blue blazes. That's what Richard Ryder, that was his little catchphrase. Uh, Nova. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Richard Ryder, Nova created by Marv Wolfman. I just thought that was kind of neat. Uh, and again, I love the reactions, you know, as, as the flash is literally like pulled apart, I, you get these six panels that show you pretty much all the heroes on scene and their particular reactions. And I just love it. They all have these just completely horror stricken looks on their faces. I really, really like this. Page 11, jumping ahead a little bit here. You know, what's really funny and, and you kind of hit on this as well. You know, what's really strange, I don't like war comics, and I don't make any secret about that. I, I just, I have no love for the war comics, yet I love this sequence. Again, one of my favorite issues of the whole series, honestly, one of my favorite comic books ever, and so much of what I like about it is this sequence. And I just think that that's very strange that, you know, I, I don't, normally wouldn't read this stuff, don't care so much about these characters, but it's something about how it's all done here that really works well. What I think would have been interesting is if they had done this very old comic style and actually had titles for the different chapters, they could have titled this section Weird War Tales. Yes. It would have totally worked. <laughs> I think that would have been really neat. And then the next chapter would be Weird Western Tales. Yes. Yeah, they totally could have done that. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. That's a Yeah, they totally could have. Now, did you notice this? Top of page 11... It says simply, it is late spring 1944, the war in Europe, blah, blah, blah. Now, everything else, everywhere else that we have been has been specific in where we have been. Here, the issue is kind of skirted as to where we are. And I thought that that was very interesting, that it skirts the issue of specifically, which earth is this? Now, I think, this is just my theory, but I think based on something that uh, Rock says on page 15, I think this is Earth 2. Because he says, let's see, it's a, at the bottom of page 15, he's talking to Geoforce, and he says, uh, this war is for, uh, for soldiers, not mystery men like you all-star heroes. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of funny because it's Markovia. So you think Geoforce, so this is Earth mm -hmm. 1. And I always thought that Sergeant Rock was Earth One. Otherwise, we, I did too. Otherwise, we would have seen more of him in All Star Squadron. You would think, right? And you know, we've gone over this before on the the Main Tales show that Steel, the Indestructible Man, was originally supposed to be an Earth One character. Right, uh, he was just kind of you know, taken over to Earth 2 during All-Star Squadron. So he would have been, like, one of the few costumed heroes. So my no prize for this is that there are comics with superheroes in them, and that's what he's referring to. Could be. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful no prize. Yeah, you know, that's I hadn't thought of that. 
No, I think that's a I think that's a brilliant way to to look at this because I'm with you. I always thought that Rock and the World War II heroes were Earth One heroes, specifically because there were um, issues where, like I, the one that stands out in my mind is DC Comics presents. I think it's number ten, where Superman goes back and teams up with Sergeant Rock. But I also know that there were issues where Batman did as well. And I think that those are considered to be either Earth 2 Batman stories or that they take place in Earth B. Was it Earth B? Yeah, yeah for which Bob were the Brave and the Yeah, Bob Haney. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's I, I like that Wolfman kind of skirted the issue here. And you could kind of interpret it a number of different ways. But I, I definitely like your no prize because that no prize actually addresses my one super nitpick of this particular uh, issue, which is if this is Earth 2, wouldn't the Spear of Destiny come into play to affect Geoforce and possibly uh, Dr. Polaris? Of course, he's already a bad guy anyway, but you know what I mean? To put them under the Nazi sway? Yeah. And I... I like that no time is wasted on that. I mean, honestly, in 30 years of reading and rereading this story, it wasn't really until just this moment that that really even occurred to me that, wait a minute, if this is Earth 2, Spear of Destiny's in play. Never really even thought about that. Unless Maybe you're James Wolf, Robinson, never thought but of it. that's in the future. <laughs> this is true. Um, I'll be honest, you know, I, I can't recall at this point, but I don't know if I knew who any of these people were, I'm talking about the world war two heroes other than Sergeant rock and Sergeant rock. I only knew from like reputation, you know, from the ads specifically like the action figure ads for Kmart figures and you know, that sort of thing. And you know, Sergeant rock did have some great comic book ads. You know, the covers always looked very interesting, but I don't think I'd ever read any of those uh, adventures except for, you know, like the DC comics presents that I mentioned before. Um, you know, something like that. So I, I knew him kind of, you know, by look and by reputation, but that was about it. As far as like the losers and haunted tank and all that, I, at this particular time, reading it for the first time as a kid, I don't think I knew who any of these people were. So I'm with you on this sense of Wolfman still making you feel something for when they're taken out of play, you know, when they're killed off. That that you know that's masterful writing when they can do something like that for characters that you just met you don't know you don't really you know have anything for but all of a sudden then they're killed and you're like ma <laughs> uh, just a general comment I like Geoforce I've always liked Geoforce I think he's a cool character I really like that panel at the page of uh, of bottom thirteen that last panel of Geoforce just kind of having that very kind of Superman look on his face right right there that's just that's nice. It's just a nice piece of artwork. Uh, page 14, fourth panel. Uh, I thought this was Rock. It's actually Sarge of the Losers. But I first I thought it was Rock, and then I realized why I was confused. You know who he really looks like? He looks like Nick Fury. A little bit. Doesn't he look like Sergeant Fury? Like Howling Commando Sir, Sergeant Fury? You know, with the stogie sticking out of his mouth and the stubble and all that? A little bit. I, I mean, a lot of these... Oh, I'm sorry. I could totally see that. I think a lot of these World War II characters kind of looked uh, kind of looked the same anyway. In a lot well, they, of ways. they all had Maybe that's kind of the me. same uniforms. So right. <laughs> 
That uh, last panel, page fourteen, the the strip across the bottom with the uh, haunted tank charging in and the and rock and the commando or rock and the uh, easy company charging. That's just awesome. I love that. That's just a great piece of art right there. Absolutely. Uh, page fifteen, panel two. This is a really weird perspective shot here. You've got, I th- now how I've always interpreted this is Captain Storm climbing up the tor- the the tuning fork i think but the perspective is really weird because it looks like one of two things is happening either he's being crushed by it or he's crawling out from underneath it it's just yeah, it's really a little strange weird looking. yeah I, yeah i see what you're saying uh, i'm not sure what exactly we're supposed to be looking at there page 16 um just the whole thing of the i think the dialogue's a little clunky it says they were called the losers but they were winners to the end i'm like what? They just died. <laughs> it's just kind of weird. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not. In the original issue, the paper issue, or, you know, in the paper issue, the single issue, I mean, page 16, there's no snowfall. And they actually corrected it in the reprinted, in, sure. in the, uh, I did in the not hardcover and in the absolute edition. I thought that that was very interesting. Glad you're paying that, better uh, attention than I am. <laughs> well i was looking for differences and corrections and things like that because i just you know i enjoy things like that so i thought that was interesting they kept the look uniform uh through the entire adventure whereas before the so- the snowfall just abruptly ends page 16 the death of flower oh, i'm gonna miss him i have no idea who flower even was <laughs> wow <laughs> page 16 last two panels shattering the shadow demon i love this part that's just cool I just I think that that's a really uh, creative way to take the demon out. You know, you've got uh, Geoforce keeps the the shadow demon rooted to the ground with his gravity powers, and then uh, Doctor Polaris just lays into him with his magnetic powers and just pulls the thing apart. I think that's neat. I think that was the first that we've seen one actually defeated, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Let's see. I keep losing my place in my notes here. I just got so many on this whole thing because I enjoy it. Nice to see uh, Blue Beetle getting something to do, but there are some inconsistencies here. The you know he mentions the scarab, and the scarab is what saves him. And he mentions you know of course the original Blue Beetle. He says the original Blue Beetle gave it to him. Is that right? Because I thought that that was one of the big differences between the original Garrett Blue Beetle and the ted cord blue beetle is that ted cord did not have he had the scarab he could never make it work the way garrett could does that come along later though i think that comes in the lynn ween series the so maybe i'm maybe i'm future projecting i'm trying to remember i i used to be better versed on the on the blue beetle but it's been so long since i i've read you know it really didn't come into like super play until the lead up to infinite crisis right uh, because the scarab becomes one of the mystical artifacts that uh, shazam uses during day of judgment mm-hmm. or well, i know day it of plays Vengeance. a big part day of judgment you know, god i can't remember which one's which one, <laughs> one is that 1999 series that established how jordan is a specter one is where all the magic based characters so that must have been day of vengeance yeah i think so yeah, I know what you're talking about. 
And I just, I, I, there's something here with this whole thing that's gnawing at the back of my brain, but I can't remember. Maybe I'll think of it later on. But just some, something to do with that whole scarab thing. Uh, page 18, uh, you know, I like Superman actually admitting that, uh, that you know, there are things that worry him, that frighten him. Because he said, you know, he asked Dawn's story, he just says, is it wrong for, for a Superman to say he's frightened? <laughs> kind of like that. You know, it kind of humanizes You him. know what really scares me, Dawn Star? What? An all-Democrat Congress. <laughs> I'm a little uncomfortable with you right now, Superman. I don't need to know your politics. <laughs> <laughs> he mentions the red skies as well. Uh, I like the moment between Commandy and Solovar, and Solovar spelled correctly for a change uh, all through the issue, which I appreciated. But uh, I did. I, I really like this little moment between the two of them. It's. I thought it was kind of cruel, though, that now Commandy has no idea what's become. He just thinks that Solovar just pulls a Yoda and just blinks out of existence when he dies or something, but he's actually transported back. Uh, page 19, panel 3, Solovar, just before he does pull that fade away, he says uh, to Commandy, he says, I saw the future, lad, and for, you there, and for you there are so many changes awaiting. Now, he's right, but how does he know all this? You know, how, when did that's he... going to that's gonna pop up in the other the um the notes from the original like barest outline and the plot that mm. we'll be discussing because something about that is mentioned in there and i made a note of it basically because up until this very moment i never really knew what wolfman was referring to in those but uh, now okay. i can kind of tie all that together so okay cool yeah, I've, I've often wondered about that. Although, I, I like the foreshadowing. E- even though I wonder about the source of the foreshadowing, I like the foreshadowing because it does end up paying off in this. Um, also there on page 19, there's a couple of panels of Superman in shadow with just kind of his S uh, standing out. And I, I, I love that. I don't recall really ever seeing that much with the Earth 2 Superman. I know that they do this quite a bit with the Earth you know, with, with Superman post-crisis. Yeah. I know that Jurgens would do this often, but there's something about that that looks really cool with just his S standing out and no other coloring in it. I think that's kind of neat. Bottom of the page here, Batlash. I'm pretty sure, almost positive, that this was my very first exposure to Batlash. And I like that this sequence of him being thrown out of the bar and everything. This sums up this character very nicely. This is pretty much what he's all about. And this happens repeatedly in his original adventures of him just getting, you know, tossed out of a, a bar saloon or hotel or whatever, um, you know, for his uh, roguish ways. I just think that's really neat. But I was completely stumped. And I mentioned this last time around. I was just completely stumped on the whole bat thing. I, to this day, I've never known anybody nicknamed bat. So I know his his real name is Bartholomew, and I guess that's supposed to be some sort of nickname abbreviation, but I thought Bartholomew, I thought, was always Bart. I've never heard Bat before. So it just, as a kid, that just totally threw me. I kept waiting for the revelation that he was somehow like the Old West Batman or like a predecessor of Bruce Wayne. or so. I just was lost on that whole thing, you know, looking for those connections that, that just weren't there. Um. I'm with you, Mike. You know, how long has the tuning fork been standing here that there was enough time for Kiwanote to send everybody telegrams? Because, I mean, I would think that that took at least 
at the very least days, but yes. probably weeks back then, right? I would assume so. Plus, you know, you would have to know where the person was. And I, you know, a lot of times back in these days when, when people did wander and things, you know, you would send it to a place that you thought they might wind up eventually. So, you know, if he sent it to... I don't know, to Tombstone or something, hoping that Bat showed up there. You know, he might not show up there for weeks or months. So, yeah, it's a little weird in the whole, you know, time frame that we're talking about here. But then, of course, with time travel being involved, then, you know, they could be pulling a Doc Brown and they could wait 70 years for him to show up, I, I guess. I, you know, it's just a little weird. <laughs> now, I knew who Jonah Hex was, of course, but I'm not sure how or how much at this time probably i'm I'm guessing here but probably mostly again much like sergeant rock probably mostly from the ads and just kind of his general reputation this may have been the first comic i actually read with him but i i really cannot remember at this point but it was not until much later that i became interested and and fascinated with the character that would come you know years later uh the other characters here as well uh my my first except maybe for kiwanote you know uh, scalp hunter i had probably seen him in ads as well because he was frequently uh featured in some really good ads um particularly the one where he's arm wrestling with uh, abe lincoln i think i've seen that (laughs) i had seen that one prior to this you um, and abe lincoln (laughs) Uh, Lash had, uh, you know, he, you know, he walks into the cavern in this sequence here. And of course he knows Kiwanote by name. Uh, they had teamed up before, but he also says, he says, Jonah Hex, right? And then Hex just says, uh, good seeing you, Lash. Now, Lash had teamed up with both Hex and Scalp Hunter and Cinnamon, as it turns out, she's not here in jla uh justice league of america number 198 and 199 it was a uh, lord of time story where certain members of the justice league wound up back in the old west and one of the ones that wound up there was the hal jordan green lantern that's how hex recognizes the the uniform of the green lantern lash and scalp hunter teamed up a couple of times in weird western tales starting with issue number 45 I don't recall the first time Lash and Hex met, you know, their first pre-crisis meeting. It may well have been in that JLA story. I just can't remember. Their first in-continuity meeting uh, would actually be covered many years later in the Jimmy Palmiotti and uh, Justin Gray uh, Hex series that just wrapped up uh, not long ago. But uh, as I say, I'm pretty sure that this was my first exposure to most of the Western characters that are shown here. Uh, and it wasn't until much later in life that uh, that I got interested in um, Jonah Hex and, uh, and Scalp Hunter. Batlash is still one of those characters. I, I enjoy him when he pops up in either of their adventures, but he's not a character that I, I'm particularly interested in on his own. I, he, a lot of his earlier stuff, uh, I just didn't care for the, the art and the style of storytelling in it. Um, this is the first appearance of Nighthawk in nearly 26 years. His last appearance prior to this issue was in uh, May of 1959 in uh, Western Comics number 76. 
And just based solely on his look and his, his appearance and his uniform and everything, I took him very much to be kind of DC's Lone Ranger, which isn't really accurate, but that's how I kind of took him here. So that sequence uh, where he, you know, he rides off and he rides into the town to assist the folks and everything, which is a scene that, granted, I think could be interpreted a number of ways. Because when I was first rereading this, you know, taking notes and everything, I, it suddenly occurred to me that it almost looks like he abandons Hex and the others, like he runs out on them. But I don't think that's really what's happening here. I think what it is is he sees something menacing the town of Coyote, and he rides to see what he can what he can do. As it turns out, nothing, and it, and this is the death of the character. But. Uh, it is somewhat open to interpretation on those uh, first few panels as he rides off. Uh, to this day, I don't know much of anything about this version of Johnny Thunder. Um, you know, I've, I've read his, uh, his who's who and all that, but I don't think I've ever read any adventures with him that I can remember anywhere. Um, I know it seems sacrilegious to say so, but uh, I don't much care for Perez's rendition of, uh, of Jonah Hex. It's one of the few uh, characters in this entire series that I look at and I just go, eh, I don't know, George, I, I don't care for your particular uh, iteration of him. Plus, Hex's hair color keeps changing from uh, from red to yellow, which is weird, but Hex is, is a redhead. Uh, what else have I got here? I always love that sequence of the four... Uh, I say heroes, but of course Simon's not a hero, but the four descending down the tower yes. and Lash just uh, suddenly takes pot shots at them. I absolutely love that. I've always thought that was cool, especially that the two rounds that are uh, going to hit Firebrand dissolve before they actually get to her. I think that's really cool. And I, again, I love that it's Hex that scolds uh, Bat Lash and says, don't you remember the green costume on that hombre? He says... It's the same one we saw in that other guy who called himself a lantern or something, only he wasn't no colored man. And uh, and John Stewart says, I've replaced that other Green Lantern. And I think some of this is paralleled in Green Lantern issues that we'll be covering later on, as I recall. And then Lash hits on Firebrand, which I thought was great. After taking shots at her, he says, uh, Sure, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'd never hurt no woman as beautiful as you. I think that's great. <laughs> that is great. All right, here's a mystery. Page 22, panel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, with Simon. What the hell is happening here? Is this Simon brain-blasting somebody or getting blasted? And then he, he's he gone after this. Like, of course, we only have just a, a couple more panels beyond this point with the Western scene, but he appears to just be gone after this. Now, of course, I know how it plays out. But as a kid, I can remember being really confused by this, going, what What am I looking at here? It's very similar to uh, another panel from a prior issue that, uh, that I remarked on before, where every once in a while, just something happens in the art that you're not exactly sure how to interpret You know that particular panel. And this was definitely one of them. Page... 23 again the uh the death of nighthawk here this as you said before mike this would change post-crisis here's the weird thing now i agree with you that his inclusion in the the hawkman series 
was really cool. I liked that they retconned it to where Nighthawk was a past life of Hawkman and that Cinnamon was a past like life of his wife and that they, you know, much like they are doomed to, to do and constantly doomed to relive, they find each other and they become lovers and all that much, you know, shortly before they die. What has always bugged me and this definitely bugged me with the losers. And we'll be talking about this down the road in a, in a couple months is that they died during the crisis, but then post crisis, that's not how they died. And that always drove me crazy. Is like, I, I, as much as I really love that Hawkman story, I wish that Nighthawk's death was still here but, in Coyote at the hands of the crisis and not the way he eventually does die post crisis. But remember that the crisis was different in the new reality. There weren't Earths, there weren't an antimatter wave destroying reality. Because the whole point of the antimatter wave was wiping out different Earths. So it was probably more like the anti-monitor was trying to destroy the universe uh, and was stopped by the heroes, including the Flash. That's how I always kind of took it. So you're you're saying that post-crisis, because there was now one unified universe and not multiple universes, that there never was a, a wave that destroyed anything? Uh, that's what I would... I would have to assume that because when you look at how, especially the next issue ends, you know, that that's it. I mean... <laughs> that's true, yes, yeah, that's true. So in... Uh, you know, the crisis, it was always kind of ambiguous how it played anyways. Uh, so, you know, it's just always like, oh, that crisis thing where Barry died. I mean, that was basically the extent. So right. I just took it that the antimatter wave did not hit in the same way that it did in the original series just because the timeline was correct. Hmm. That's interesting. We're going to have to we're going to have to remember to come back to that at some point. Because that raises so many interesting questions. That if there was never an antimatter wave, then what was what was everybody? For one thing, how did they know that the crisis manifests post crisis? But also, what was everybody so afraid of? You know, if, if they never saw the the wave coming at them, like they do here, very clearly see it coming at them, and it's and it's freaking people out, and it's you know killing people and absorbing you know, buildings and entire cities and everything, if that never happened post-crisis, then what What was the threat, essentially? How did, how did the threat manifest itself to where they even knew there was a crisis? I think that's something to... We'll have to, we'll have to look into that. We'll have to address that. Well, I know that um, in, what was it, DC Legacies covers the crisis from a post-crisis perspective. I've actually never read that. I'll, I'll have to give that a read and maybe I have it. I haven't insight. read it either. Yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to look into that when we get to our, our big wrap up and everything that, that'd be an interesting question to try to address is what, what did the crisis look like retroactively? Uh, let's see. Wrapping up my notes here. Page 24, Death of Kid Psycho, to which uh, you really need to put in a sound clip of that guy from uh, Guardians going, who? I consider myself a huge Legion of Superheroes fan. Had no clue who the hell Kid Psycho was. Not a clue. I don't think I'd ever seen him before this issue. So his death 
is effective, I think, mostly because he is truly a child. He he looks very much like Billy Batson. Mm-hmm. He's he, he is you know, granted all the Legionnaires are supposed to be, you know, teenagers. More by this time I always took them to be more like they were in their mid to late twenties. Whereas here, Kid Psycho really looks like a child of maybe, I don't know, like 14 or something. So it's the death of a child. And in that aspect, it's very effective. But in the aspect of, oh my gosh, you know, they just killed off Kid Psycho. Had no effect on me because, yeah. (laughs) They killed Kid Psycho. Uh, Page 25. Now that's more like it. Now that's an exciting ending right there. Although, now, I'm going to leave it to you, Mike. Should we spoil something about this ending, or should we leave that and hopefully try to remember it for next time around? Well, what do you want to do, and then we'll decide. What are you talking about? Um, As it turns out, this is not Harbinger menacing the monitor. That's how it looks. It looks like she interrupts him in his you know, in his soliloquy here by going, wrong, old fool, it is time for you to die. As it turns out, See how the corners of those three panels in the middle are rounded? Mm-hmm. She's observing him via monitor. So she's not actually there. So this threat is her actually like yelling at the TV, essentially. So so she's your dad. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Or me by this point, yeah. <laughs> Although she's not throwing sneakers at it or anything, but yeah, <laughs> essentially. But okay, she comes in at the end of the thing and, okay, wrong, old fool, it's time for you to die. Wait, 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 wait. Let's refresh. Let's go back a few pages here. What exactly was her directive from her shadowy master? What did he tell her to do? On page three, fourth panel, destroy the Luthor child. What happened to that? Yeah. I guess she forgot. Should get around to it. Yeah, that is something. You know, you know, I, I, when I first, when I, when I was reading this before I was reading it to take notes, I, I noticed that, and I meant to write that down. I don't know why I glossed over that with my notes, but yeah, that is one of the things. It's like go do this, and she never does. <laughs> so she never even tries to. So maybe that's just something Para, I mean Wolfman wrote, and then just never dealt with again. Like it got lost in the flow. Ah, maybe cut her some slack because you know so. good minions are hard to come by or something. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> good mind controlled minions are hard. There to you find. go. It just didn't have to have the time to like apprentice somebody else or whatever. But would it be awesome if he had like the minions from Despicable <laughs> Me working for him? That'd be great. Minions on Infinite Earths. There you go. <laughs> See them all in little superhero and supervillain costumes. Ah, <laughs> oh, somebody's got to Photoshop that now. <laughs> oh, let's see. What a teaser, though, right? I mean, this is yes. awesome. I mean, I loved the one for last time that told you all the great heroes that were going to be in this one. But this one is awesome because this tells you what you're in for. This is the big one. The end of the multiverse. And I know it's at the very end of the issue, but I mean, that also lends into... It's so hard to put it into words, my exact feelings for this issue. But my my feelings for this issue are very much on the scale of, whoa... Because I really do very firmly remember reading this for the first time as a kid and feeling like as awesome as issue one was, as as epic as issue two was, that this was the issue where it's truly like, ooh, you know, it's, it's, this is getting intense. 
Because, you know, as promised, people died. And, of course, we saw that in issue one. We saw it in issue two. It feels, and I say feels because reading this again, it's not really true. But it feels in this one like this suddenly, like the ante really gets upped. And I think the reason for that is, I mean, not again. I mean, I didn't know who the hell the losers were. I didn't know who Kid Psycho was. Their deaths don't really affect me or or even uh, Nighthawk. Their deaths don't really affect me. But I think what it was, was it was the sense of this was no longer on some unnamed Earth or Earth 3 or some Earth off on the periphery that while I might miss it a little bit, ultimately is not going to ruin, you know, my enjoyment of DC Comics. Suddenly this was here. This was Earth yeah. 1. And we're losing people and, and things are happening. You know, the Empire State Building is being dissolved. It just, it has that feel of, oh my God, you know, the, the ante's been upped. You know, the, the, the threat is at our doorstep now. And I really like that feel. And, and that's why issue three is one of my absolute favorite issues. Because it just, it feels like, ooh, it, it, it's here. I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> just how I feel no, about the whole sense. thing. Um, this will be addressed next issue, but it has to be asked, uh, where are Firestorm and Killer Frost? And that is pretty much... All I've got making water somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was that was bad. Maybe they got um, that room after all, or, or mattress, or whatever it was. Couple uh, notes about the the actual paper issue and not the reprint. There, there's a there's a little editorial on the text page called Cooperation DC Style, where Marv kind of goes into how uh, everyone's coordinating for. Crisis on Infinite Earths and all that. There were two things about this that struck me. One, uh, he writes, All concern had to be informed about the Monitor so he could appear in our entire line, from the new Teen Titans to GI Combat, which, for those collectors out there who didn't know it, was the only DC comic to show what the Monitor looked like before his supposed first appearance here in Crisis. I'm wondering if that launched, like, the value of that book. Like, no one really knew until this editorial and then suddenly that book started getting sought after in the secondary market shot up in value. Hmm. I, 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 I'm curious about that. That he says, he starts talking about the, uh, the crossovers. The first uh, is a giant loser special appearing this summer that will pick up on events seen in this issue. You'll also see crossovers from Superman to The Flash, Swamp Thing, Blue Devil, The Teen Titans, and many, and many other books. I'm wondering if at this point The Flash was planned to have a crossover, but they decided against it and just ended the series. Oh, had uh, had 350 not hit yet? No. Ah. At least I don't think it has. That's a good catch, Mike, because, uh, you know, I read this myself and never even put together the, the thing about The Flash, because you're right, The Flash never would have any Crisis crossovers. It had pre-Crisis monitor appearances, which is might be why I missed it. But yeah, there were never any uh, crossovers proper because the series ends at, at 350. Yeah, I, I didn't even catch that. The ads in this book are... Ki- are- Interesting. There's not like any that stand out that go, "Ooh, that's that that's awesome." That I that I need to talk about. But on the inside front cover, it says, uh, "Thanks." Yeah, it was the cover date was October 1985 for Flash 350. 
So that came out in July of 1985. So they were talking about his death before his series even ended. That's kind of weird. But we have an ad on the inside front cover. Thanks to Amazing Heroes. They have the best ten books, according to R.A. Jones from Amazing Heroes, number 63. Number one was Swamp Thing. Number four was Teen Titans. Makes sense. Number seven and eight, Blue Devil and Atari Force. Yeah, that's really... That's it's odd. I think the whole list is very interesting. You know, you've got Swamp Thing, of course... John Sable and American Flag, which to this day I I really have not read any of. I've heard very interesting things about both of them. Um, that might be one of those one of these days kind of things. Teen Titans, and you've got Fantastic Four. This would still be Burn Era, right? Yes, it yeah. would. It would absolutely be the Burn Fantastic Era. Fantastic Four, X Men. Where was X Men at in nineteen eighty four? Was that Is this like the Paul, Paul Smith, Smith? That's what I was thinking. Almost too. into the John Romita Jr. Yeah. era, I believe, somewhere around there. Yeah, that was good stuff around that time. Blue Devil and Atari Force making the list just cracks me up, though. They're both great series, though. I see why they made the list. Atari Force was a good book. I have to give that one a second look sometime. I've tried getting into that one before, but there's something about the artwork that just puts me off on that one that I couldn't get into. And Blue Devil was just an amazing book as well. That one was fun. Really fun, fun book. It was a fun book. And then we have Doctor Strange and Power Pack. Would this be the the Stern era of Doctor Strange? Probably. I've with Paul Smith on the art. I've been meaning to read that for so many years, and uh, and the only reason I have it is uh, that I have not is that I, I just don't have enough issues of it. It's one of those things that wherever I see it in like the 50 cent or quarter bins or whatever, I'll scarf the issues up, but I just, I don't have enough of a, of a solid run to get cranking on it yet. But one of these days I want to read that one and classic power pack. I don't know that I've ever read any of, but, uh, both my kids when they were little, both really, uh, enjoyed power pack. That's one of those ones you can scarf up, you know, like dozens of issues out of the cheapy bins and you can basically build a whole collection, which I think I did for them. And they really liked it, but I've never read any of it myself. So we we have a Reese's Pieces ad in here that has nothing to do with comics, but, you know, in, in trying to keep up the E.T. phone home kind of appeal of, of a couple years earlier, we have this alien holding a bunch of Reese's Pieces, and it says, Shadame de Fas, which translates to, I traveled 369 billion Four hundred eighty-four million two hundred seventy-eight thousand twenty-five miles for Reese's Pieces. <laughs> I don't know why I always liked those ads, but uh, every time I see them when I'm looking through an old book, like they were like rife with them in this era. I, you know, I, I I just get a smile on my face because it reminds me of that. There really aren't any. There's a Remco ad with Warlord, but you know what DC book in this time period? didn't have a warlord action figure Remco ad. So <laughs> the meanwhile for this month is a guest by Andrew Helfer who uh, talks about the death of letterer Ben Oda. Uh, and it's kind of a touching uh, eulogy really for the, for, for the guy uh, that, you know, you probably didn't pay too much attention to really. And the rest of the ads are really boring. So <laughs> now, as with the first two issues, uh, thanks to the wonderful Crisis Companion that came with the Absolute Crisis on Infinite Earths from DC Comics, they have both the outline and the plots to all of the issues. And in the original outline to Crisis 3, uh, this, these are kind of the differences that Wolfman had uh, originally conceived of that were uh, 
were changed. The Guardians enter the fray and wonder what to do. Lila's treachery revealed and she affects different timelines. More universes were supposed to die. Now, Blue Beetle was wounded, sort of, but not like Solovar. But Green Lantern was also supposed to be wounded. This is the interesting one. Lightning Lord and Doctor Fate were both slated to enter the story. And that just doesn't happen at all. So, I'm wondering what happened there. And we talked about what Solovar said about Commandy's future. This is what I'm thinking he means when he writes the Tommy Tomorrow subplot started. Uh, but that's never spelled out in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So. Uh, what what page is this on? Because I was actually looking at the the outline because I wanted to go over that out of the companion. Where is... There are the plots and the outline. The outline is on page 10. Flip to that real quick. Oh, okay. Yeah, here we are. Ah, so on, okay. On See, I've been missing this because I've been going to the I've been going to the uh, the plot. So this is the outline, and the others the plot. Then, yes, I gotcha. So it says issue three. It says Lila turns on the monitor. We move into the other epics uh, mentioned at the end of issue two, and the various heroes and villains uh, teams do their stuff. They protect their machines, but during the course of things, Flash dies, and then in parentheses it says, not really. Red Tornado and the Omega Men are brought into the story, and the Guardians recover and send one of their own into space to find out what's happening. It's very interesting. We have not seen either the Red Tornado or the Omega Men show up in this yet. Meanwhile, Superman, Batman, the Teen Titans, Lightning Lord, Dr. Fate, Luthor, and Brainiac, and the Outsiders enter the plot. Luthor Baby's uh, subplot develops. He is now 13 years old, and the positive and negative parts of him interest the Monitor. He undergoes experiments. Commandy's story continues. Hmm. So some of that we got, and some of that we did not. Perhaps a costume change here, although it does not see who they're talking about. In World War II, the losers die in battle. The heroes and villains are separated. During the separation, Blue Beetle, Solovar, Green Lantern, wounded... A legionnaire dies. Also, the new Teen Titan, whoever he slash she may be, and that is actually held off until I want to say the it's the last the issue, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder the legionnaire that dies. Are they talking about Kid Psycho, or would this be a different legionnaire? I wonder. It just says a no legionnaire. idea. It's interesting. I'm wondering if what it was was he wrote these things and left it you know knowing that the editorial teams in charge of these particular houses were going to kill a character he just didn't know which character it was going to be so he he just left it as a legionnaire because he knew that they were going to give up you know their their sacrificial lamb from their department so to speak does that make sense yeah that's kind of how i interpret this anyway uh the villains are brought to the harbinger and they are told of the power uh they will have if if they cooperate hmm so that's actually going to come further down the line. Yep. With Luther and Brainiac now in charge of the villains, they pretend to listen but plan their revolt. The villains understand that everything will be dead if they cooperate. And and then it says, explain pariah, which <laughs> doesn't, doesn't happen. happen at all. <laughs> so and that's it for issue uh, issue three. Whew. Issue four is going to have some uh, some stuff, though. 
Yeah, it's really interesting how when you look at the original outline to the original plot to the final, the final product, how loose, even in the plots that he worked out, uh, how loose those were in comparison to things changing on the fly. I mean, there's some significant changes from the original outline, and you would expect that. You know, you, you know, a story like this isn't going to, you know, just pop up and uh, you know be you know have a, a rigid plan at the very beginning. Uh, plus, you know, he may not have known exactly what he wanted to do with everything, so he keeps it kind of loose and and, and kind of loosey goosey. Uh, I just I keep coming back to this Guardians entering the fray, how important it was in the plot, but then it's just never even hardly mentioned in crisis itself and it seems also that he had more in mind for commandy uh, in terms of setting up what eventually happens to that character but that's all kind of pushed to the sideline as well because i don't think we really maybe outside of issue four i don't think we see commandy in this story at all in the back half of it until that very last issue right am i wrong no that's how i remember it too that uh that sure i think I think next issue might be the last we see of Commandy for a while. Actually, I've got... I can cheat. I've got my uh, index right here. Let's see. Commandy. He's shown for issue two. It just says last appearance, but then beyond that, it doesn't show either last or next appearance for him in any of the subsequent entries. But just off the top of my head, I think you're right. I don't think we see him again until issue... uh, I think it's issue 12. Oh, Commandy, you came and you gave us <laughs> Our Wolfman wrote you away, oh, Commandy. Not even seeing him listed in the character. Oh, yeah, that you're right. He's one of the ones that doesn't get a yeah. next appears in. I feel ripped off. I want my money back. <laughs> they did all that work, and it's just, it's just, it's useless to me. Useless. So... But I think that is it for Crisis number three. Wow. Haven't even gotten to a crossover yet, but boy, are they coming. Yeah, so. hot and heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, folks. Uh, you think the coverage is uh, intense right now. When we get to the actual uh, crossover issues, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Mike and I are going to be uh, doing lots of homework on those, but. I'm excited. No, I'm just gonna fake it. I'm not gonna read a single thing. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna gonna key off your notes like I used to do in English class. So now, but next time, uh, well, ne- not next time on this show, but the, the next thing you'll hear is another exciting episode of Tales of the JSA, where we cover more of the Baron Blitzkrieg story. And uh, I know Scott and I are just itching to talk more about Chroma because he was because su- he was such an interesting and an important character. Uh, in the DC universe, and I I can't lie anymore. I hated the character. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say it was but in a Chroma? couple weeks. <laughs> in a couple weeks, Crisis number four. Ooh. It all ends there. Yes, so looking forward to that. We'll be a third of the way through the series. Wow, I can't believe it. Time's flying. Time's flying. <laughs> 
I don't want it to be over, Scott. Say it's never over. Oh, it's not going to be over for quite a while. <laughs> even after even after number 12, uh, the, the after effects are, are going to keep us talking crisis for quite some time. We'll just never end the show. We'll just just keep we'll keep, we'll, keep, we'll we'll go to a panel by panel analysis after uh, we're done with the series just to be that thorough. <laughs> It'll be the most boring thing you've ever heard. You have reached the end of another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America presents Crisis on Infinite Earths. You can find this show under the Tales of the JSA feed at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can find a plethora of fine programs that span the range of geek subjects like giant monsters to time lords to anime to movie commentaries. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Comics Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Earning My Ears, Back to the Bins, and Growing Up Star Wars. Mike is also on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Longbox, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast which can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos, so much so they occasionally address themselves in the third person. If you want to address them, send email to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click the PayPal link. Donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're sponsoring, add a personal message if you want, and you will be an official sponsor of the very next episode with your message read right in the show's opener. It's that easy and there's no minimum donation. Become a show sponsor today! You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks family as a whole when you shop at Amazon. Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of the sale will get kicked back to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the JSA Presents Crisis on infinite Earths.